Right. So we are right about in the middle of this series on love, looking at love not being arrogant or rude, and got six more after this bad boy. So we got a lot of time to reflect on this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and how important it is, uh, how important it was for the Corinthians, and uh, obviously for us as well. Remember the context of this section, that in chapters 12 and 14, Paul speaks about the various gifts that the church has been given by the Spirit of God. But these Corinthians are exalting themselves and viewing themselves as superior to others, to you know, their own brothers and sisters, on account of this gifting. So the question really is, what do you have that you were not first given? And uh, Paul said, puts this chapter in here in between these two sign gift uh, chapters to focus on the primacy of love, the supremacy of love. This is foundational. So I'll read that in just a moment, but I want to pray for us this morning. Our gracious God, we do come before you again humbly. We love you. We thank you very much for this word, 1 Corinthians 13. We do pray that we would gain a better understanding of what Paul is getting at and see Christ as love incarnate and to imitate this, uh, this our risen Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. So. I'll read the whole chapter, even though the focus is really just on one part of verse 4 and one part of verse 5. So here's 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So, focusing here on verse 4b, uh, it is not arrogant, and then 5a, or rude. Those two words, that's what we're looking at this morning in our study of what is love. And Kyle Borg, in his uh, brief book, just, just a small book on, on love, on this chapter, he says, as Paul writes about what love isn't, the Corinthians were supposed to read between the lines, love isn't us. He's, he's hitting them right between the eyes there. He's reminding them that they have not been loving to one another. They have not loved the Lord, their God, as well as they ought to have done, and they are not, on the horizontal level, loving one another. They are preferring themselves to the others. 
They are demonstrating some sense of su superiority. They are thinking how exalted they are because of their own gifting. And so these verses are beautiful, as all verses are, but they ought to be convicting. And the Corinthians, Lord willing, were convicted by Paul's hard words about what love is. They should be reflecting, I'm not this. I'm not, I'm not patient. I'm not kind. I'm not, I, I do envy. I do boast. I'm not, uh, I'm not preferring others. I'm insisting on my own way. In the same way, we ought to be doing the same. I've, I, I think I um, have given this example many times, but if you just plug in your name here as a, to do the, the love test, instead of love, put your name. Michael's patient and kind. Michael does not envy or boast. Just put in your own name and see how well you do. Rate, rate, rate yourself zero out of ten. Don't give yourself a zero, okay? Because that's false humility. Or you're saying you're an unbeliever. Are you saying you're an unbeliever? Don't say you're an unbeliever if you believe in Jesus. Okay? The Spirit of God is indwelling you, and you should expect to see fruit. So yes, there will be some... There will, be, there, will, there will be patience, there will be kindness, and, and the rest. But obviously you wouldn't give yourself a 10. You wouldn't say, yes, I am the, the best at not boasting. I'm the best at being kind. Of course, Jesus Christ has a 10 out of 10 on, on these, because he is love. But we're zeroing our focus here on arrogance and rudeness. When you think of arrogance... What comes to mind? Think of biblical characters, actions, attitudes. What comes to mind when you think of the word arrogance? I always think of Samson. Samson. Like, the chief uh, example of being arrogant. Okay. Um, how so? Unpack that. Um, just because he um, trusted in his own strength and might and uh, let down his guard, uh, giving away his secret to Delilah, thinking that um, no one could ever overtake him because of his own, uh, mm -hmm. oh, well, in the way he thought he was obeying the law of being a Nazarite. Yes. He had that gift from the Lord, and he, he became too confident. He became self-confident. He wasn't confident in the spirit. That's a good example. Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Yeah, how so? about arrogance? I mean, I know what's godly and you don't. Mm -hmm. It's basically all that they said. And they would misquote scripture like crazy. And they would invent rules that weren't biblical at all. And then try to hold everybody accountable for them. Like, I would love to be told how many feet I can walk from my house on Sunday. Right. Well, in their defense, Steve... There's the law, and then they just really want to make sure that they didn't break it, so they fenced it even even more. Yeah, but they did it arrogantly. That's what I'm yes. saying. They were demonstrating arrogance when they did that. It, yeah, wasn't, it wasn't loving, kind, concern for people. It was self-centered. Uh, their prayer, the one prayer that we read in the Bible of, I'm glad I'm not like so-and-so mm -hmm. who does, that's, you know, that's arrogant arrogant. You know? Jesus condemns them because of their traditions of men yeah. that they, they hold over people. 
Who else do you guys have in mind? Well, how about the sons of, sons of thunder, John and James, when they're like, Jesus, like, we're going to be, who's going to be at the right and left hand when you're in heaven? Surely it's us, right? Master. Youths over there, can you think of any arrogant examples of scripture? You all three are in a team group, so maybe even just focus on Genesis. We've covered, you know, a half of it. Think of some of the arrogant figures in Genesis. Okay. Yeah, which one? Both? Okay. <laughs> all right. Deborah, um, Pick one of those and expand on why, where you might see arrogance and Jacob or Esau or both. Well, Jacob um, tricking his father into giving him the inheritance despite the fact that it meant that he was his son. Mm. I think they're all aligned on that. I can see this clearly. Yeah. Yes, good example. Mac Attack, you got anyone in mind? Not really. Think of like a. Think of like, um, like a, a, an ascending building structure, maybe? Something that goes to the heavens. Can you think of one of those? One, one language. You mean the reason we don't speak the same language anymore? The reason we don't speak the same language. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I'm down about something. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, another problem. Yeah, so what, what did the, the scriptures say that they wanted to do for themselves? They want to reach God. Yeah, they want to get to the highest level and so make a name for themselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. They parrot Genesis 1 language of God saying, let us make man our own image. And said, we're, we're going to be we're going to be the top gods. We're going to be the, the heavenly you know, celestial beings. That's, that's who we are. That's, that's what we deserve. Even before Genesis 11. Maybe the first arrogant one. Jack, you know who I'm talking about? Yes, Adam. Adam. Yeah, how was he how was he demonstrating arrogance there? Um, because he was deceived by the serpent to think that he could be like God, that he would eat he would eat from the fruit and, mm-hmm. and know what God knew. Yeah. He wanted to exalt himself on the same level uh, as God, knowing good and evil, and determining who uh, setting uh, moral parameters and the law of God. Okay, so there's several examples, Old Testament, New Testament, of demonstrations of arrogance, and obviously, if we look at our own lives, we can see, probably in the last week, where we demonstrated arrogance. Uh, Proverbs 16, 5 and 18, not in your outline, but I was reading it a couple days ago, and uh, the some verses here that speak about arrogance. 16, 5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. That language of abomination is very serious language. There's a lot of things in the Old Testament that are an abomination to the Lord. And not just actions, he's talking about a heart. A heart of arrogance is an abomination to the Lord. Um, God assures them that they will be punished for it. He says in uh, verse 18, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before the fall. So, 
arrogance in heart is an abomination, leads to judgment. What, do the New what does the New Testament say? That God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Okay. Why does God oppose arrogance? Why is he so against a haughty spirit? Why is it an abomination to him? It's against his very core nature himself. It's like, it's the reverse of love. Well, it's love in the wrong direction. It's self-centered love. Mm -hmm. It's not godly love. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, we only have one, one word, love, but the Hebrew and Greek have at least three that I'm aware of and to define different types of love. So we have to define it with words like we're using right now. Which, every time I read love in Scripture now, I want to know which type of love is that. Thank you for bottle programs. <laughs> yeah. It's a self-centered spirit. So, what does that say? But that... The creature is viewing himself as the creator. It's a, a mixture of the cre creator, creator versus creature. That's blasphemous. That's contrary. That's denying our own creaturehood, who we are. Man's chief end is to glorify self and enjoy self forever. No. It seems that way. Though. It does seem that way. Yes. Uh, another example of uh, arrogant attitudes or, or characters I, I thought of was uh, the super apostles in Second Corinthians. Paul speaks a lot against the super apostles. They've been they've been exalting themselves, saying we're the we're the real apostles. You don't even listen to Paul. You don't even listen to his teaching. He's weak. Okay. Well. Paul says, love is not arrogant. He's the only one who uses this word, and uh, he uses it seven times, and six out of those seven times, he uses it in 1 Corinthians. So he loves using this word to speak to the Corinthians about their conduct. So we see arrogance in Corinth. And I think I've given you some, uh, I, get, I think I gave you the passages there. In 1 Corinthians 4, 6, he tells the Corinthians to learn not to be puffed up that's how it's translated. The word arrogance here is translated in 4.6 as puffed up. Learn not to be puffed up in favor of one against another. Okay? Later on in that chapter, 4.18 and 19, two times he uses it. He says, some of you are arrogant, as if I weren't coming to you. I guess they thought that they could get away with certain things when the apostles away. The Corinthian minds will play. Paul would be the cat in this case, right? Oh, no, he liked it. <laughs> First Corinthians 5, 2, they arrogantly condone the man who's sleeping with his stepmom. Remember, he says, you guys are arrogant. Shouldn't you instead be mourning over what's going on? The Gentiles don't even condone this kind of behavior. But here, a man who has a stepmom, he's sleeping with his stepmom. And you're not doing anything about it. You are just thinking it's fine and dandy, apparently. You're arrogant. You're not humbly mourning over this man's sin. You're not doing anything about it. You're not 
beginning the work of church discipline on this man. So he had to do it from a distance. In 1 Corinthians 8.1, there is a certain kind of knowledge that puffs up. Again, the word arrogance translated puffs up here. But love builds up. So arrogance is contrary to love. Love builds up, and knowledge, this kind of knowledge puffs up, uh, exalts itself. So the arrogant have an inflated, exaggerated conception of themselves. When you hear the word arrogant, think peacock. What do peacocks just got to do? They just got to fly. But the problem is, they can't fly. They, look at, they say, look at me. Look at all my colors. Look at how beautiful I am. And, and they think that they can fly, but they can't. Beautiful creatures. Well, they got a nasty chirp. Got a nasty chirp. If you've ever heard that, it's just, oh, it's driving you crazy after a while. So there's, there's boasting, which is uh, in 4b. Steve talked about uh, love not being envious or not boasting. And then here uh, it says it's not arrogant. Is, does Paul have the same thing in mind? Is he just essentially repeating himself? No, there is a difference between boasting and arrogance. The boastful praise themselves, whereas the arrogant have an attitude of themselves that is too high, and is, frankly, inaccurate of themselves. So, we all know Barry Bonds, the greatest, one of the greatest baseball players who's ever played the game, played for the San Francisco Giants, okay, home run record, all that. Okay, we know him, right? So, he, uh, people walked him because they didn't want to, uh, to face his, the wrath of his bat. They just walked him, gave him first base. And still he had the home run record. Barry Bonds, beautiful baseball hitter. Taking this example, he is boastful when he praises himself. Yeah, of course, I'll hit it out of the park anytime. Just pitch it. Stop walking me. He'd be boastful if he's praising himself like that. The Bat Boy wouldn't be boastful, but rather arrogant if he began to think that he was on the same level as Barry Bonds. Yeah, coach would put me in instead of Barry Bonds. Let Barry Bonds sit on the bench and I'll get it up and I'll hit it out of the park. That would be arrogance. Now, of course, both men, Barry Bonds and Batboy, need humility. Bonds doesn't need to boast in his skills. That Batboy needs to be taken down a few notches. Bonds would be humble if he can acknowledge his talents, but also acknowledge God's gifts and his own areas for improvement. He can always grow. We always can grow. We do not... Uh, do well to think highly of ourselves. Proverbs, not Proverbs, uh, Romans 12, verse 3. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Why do we need this exhortation? As Connor Aubrey often reminds his teams, uh, there's a, if, there's a, if there's a command like this, it's to indicate that there's a reason. They do think themselves too highly. And Kyle Borg says, uh, very few people probably think 
as highly of us as we do of ourselves. We think that people pay attention to us more than they actually do, right? Um, and this could be like if you have you know, a blemish on your face or if, you have, if you're sounding weird or something. If you're not wearing the right shoes or you got a hole, well, holes, I guess, are in, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, there's something that you are somewhat shameful of, embarrassed by. You go out in public, I, I, can't, I can't wear that out in public. I can't have my face look like it does out in public. And all the while, people are, people are just, they don't, they're not really caring. Unless you're like a super, you know, out there, like a Walmart individual, you know. You know what I'm talking about, the, the Walmart people, Walmart kinds of people? You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. I don't go to Walmart. You're too good for Walmart, aren't you? You know, there's a special kind of people that attend, that frequent some establishments, and they really don't care what they look like, and it's just crazy attire if they wear anything. Anyways, we think, others think of ourselves more than, we actually, more than they actually do. And so when it comes to our own contributions, look what I did, look what I've attained. Look how I have arrived. Did you hear what I said? Wasn't that, didn't I phrase it perfectly? Uh, we value ourselves more than people actually value what we do and say. And it ought to be humbling. Uh, we're, just, we're just prone because of our own sin nature. We're prone to uh, find ways to puff ourselves up. And Paul is saying, when you do that, you're not actually demonstrating love. You're demonstrating love for self, self-promotion, which really isn't love. What do we do when people think that we've done wrong? This is really uh, a helpful question to get at arrogance. What do we do when people think we've done wrong, when their assessment of our words, when their assessment of our actions differs from our own assessment, how do we respond? Are we willing to entertain the idea that we are wrong in some way? To entertain the idea does not mean that you actually believe you're wrong. It might be the case when two people disagree that Somebody has a concern, I have to share this with you. I, I think that this was wrong when you said this. Well, it might be the case that it actually wasn't wrong. And a simple explanation, or uh, well, this is what the Bible says, and I, I try to do it in this way, and with this kind of spirit, and I think you're assigning motives to me that I actually didn't have. You know, a simple explanation could, uh, could solve the problem. But the arrogant will, will just say, there's no way. There's no way that what I said or what I did could in any way be possibly construed differently, or that I'm above reproach in all things that I say and all things that I do. There's not even the entertaining the idea that you could be wrong. You guys get what I'm saying? You, you need this humility in all of your living. If you are married, if you have children, if you are an employee, if you, if you have siblings, if you have parents, you need this humility. 
your parent has a correction for you. Do you just say, no, mom, no, dad, totally misunderstood. Or, let me think about that. I don't need to speak right now. I can just think about what mom said, what dad said. Or if uh, husbands, hey, you're the head of the house, right? So no woman can tell you what to do, right? You're the one that sets, sets the, the, the mood. and You're the head, you're in charge, so all that you do is right. Never is it wrong. Of course, being sarcastic. When your wife says, hey honey, I think, think you missed the boat here on this one. I think you said it sounded too harsh. I don't understand why you said this or why you did that. Do you entertain the idea that you are wrong, that you could be wrong? Or if you're an employee and your employer says, hey, you, you really, uh, really messed up on this one. Well, it was because of something else. Are you, are you quick to excuse, to rationalize? Or is there a pause? Maybe, maybe I am wrong. Again, doesn't mean that you are, but you need to at least entertain the idea. Does any of that resonate with some of your own experiences? How did Jesus Christ, the love of God incarnate, show that he was not arrogant? How much time do you have? <laughs> well, we, maybe in the next couple minutes. <laughs> we'll read Philippians 2 later on. Now that's what your mind went to, Joseph, I just know it. You're right. <laughs> Uh, we, we say he washes his disciples' feet. He washes his disciples' feet. Yes, that would be one demonstration of his uh, humility. We wasn't arrogant. How about he could have said, I'm, I'm your rabbi. You guys get over here and you all take turns washing my feet. Each of you grab a toe. You know? The other two can get my, my hands. He didn't do that. Well, getting ready to go to the cross. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize until I heard this morning um, that when they came to arrest him, basically, and try him, there were more than a thousand Roman troops. And they asked him, which you know, he asked them, what are you here for? Well, we're here for Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm him. They all fell on their feet. Mm -hmm. He had the ability to stop all that immediately. Right. And very humbly did not. He had prayed to the Lord, take this away from me, and then did the, not my will, but yours, which is the absolute mark of humility, I think. The number one mark of humility of all times. Amen. I'm not chomping at the bit to go through that kind of pain and agony for anything other than something extremely worthy. And right there in the start, being born in a stable, that mm -hmm. was a, a very humble birth. You could have been born in a palace yeah. and had everything. Yeah, because he is he is the great I am. In in the in John nineteen, uh, the text that Steve was just alluding to, there's that 
He, he makes an I am statement. I am me. And earlier in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. He, he knows he's God. He's not saying, well, I'm not really God, because if I'm saying, to say that I'm God, it'd be too arrogant. No, he, he knows he's God, and it would be sin for him to deny his own deity. But in the spirit of Philippians 2, he emptied himself to the point he became a servant, right? He humbled himself. What are some particular examples or scenarios in which we can demonstrate humility over arrogance? And I already gave some in reference to the question about um, entertaining the idea of being wrong. What are some other examples, scenarios in which we can demonstrate humility over arrogance? Wow. I think we see it on the highway a lot. We see the temper tantrums drivers have over what really was probably some minor infringement on their drive. You know, somebody pulls out the front of them by accident and they scream at the top of their lungs and and drive up and want to have a fist fight, or it gets really cranked up. And it was a, you know, a once in a lifetime mistake, maybe. But They're acting as if they own the streets. Right. Okay. This is my highway. I'm the one that's paid more than anybody else has. I've been driving more than many months. Yeah. <laughs> or look at my truck. You know, it's obviously more expensive than that little thing over there. And it, my truck doesn't deserve to be touched by. This little thing over uh, here. Piece of junk. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the highway. Um, driving. What else? Yes, Joanna. Accepting the Lord. What was that? Accepting the Lord into your life. Accepting the Lord into our lives. Yeah. That's <laughs> praise be to God for that gift of humility to acknowledge that we are not our own saviors. Yeah, well said, Joanna. Thank you for, for sharing. That's, that's what we were talking about at Men's Bible Study yesterday, is salvation comes from the supernatural person, Jesus Christ. It's a gift. We are not saving ourselves. It is coming from above, coming from outside ourselves. And um, we need to acknowledge that we are not the Lord. We submit to the Lord. We humbly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He alone is God and Savior. And the arrogance says, I don't need Jesus. I'll do it myself. Yeah. I don't need to be shackled by these laws. I haven't thought about it, but it's probably arrogant not to believe there's a God at all. The evidence is everywhere. Yeah. Slapping us in the face and we go, oh, it just happened with time plus chance. Mm -hmm. Millions and billions, however many years we think it takes. Yeah. The fool says in, it says in his heart there is no God. Yeah. It is arrogant to deny the knowledge that has actually been implanted in you from, from your creation. In fact, Romans 1 does talk about um, exchanging the truth of God for a lie and not giving grat due gratitude, thanks to the Lord who created us. Yeah, that's arrogance. So arrogance manifests in a denial of uh, thankfulness. The humble are thankful. So having a spirit of thankfulness would be another way of demonstrating humility. How about just reading the Word of God regularly? 
That would be a way to demonstrate humility. Lord, I, I need your wisdom now. As I go about my day, I need to know Christ with greater clarity. I need to know my sin with uh, greater hatred. So I need your word. That's humble. It's the arrogant that says, I don't need this ancient word. This doesn't speak to me. I need something else. All that sounds like bad news. But there is actually hope for those who are submitting to the Word of God. There's hope for the Corinthians. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians somewhere between 53 to 57 AD. Okay? Then 50 years later, a man named Clement, Clement of Rome, he writes a letter to the Corinthians. Now his letter is about 50 pages long. Uh, yeah, I think I have a copy of it. It's a one sheet uh, Greek, the other is, is the English. I think that whole was like 100 pages. Can you imagine receiving like a 50 page letter? Maybe you'd like that. Well, Clement of Rome, he, uh, he's actually mentioned in the scriptures. His writings are super early, late first century, but his writings are not inspired. Okay? But he does write to the Corinthians about 50 years after Paul wrote his letters to the Corinthians. Obviously, Paul wrote to the Corinthians that they were struggling with attitudes and actions of envy, boasting, arrogance, rudeness, selfish ambition, and the rest. But 50 years later, Clement commends the Corinthians for their godliness. I want to read to you just a portion of the very beginning of his letter. This is, for the most part, how he starts his 50-page letter to the Corinthians. He says, Because of the sudden and repeated misfortunes and reverses which have happened to us, brothers, we acknowledge that we have been somewhat slow in giving attention to the matters in dispute among you, dear friends, especially the detestable and unholy schism so alien and strange to those chosen by God, which a few reckless and arrogant persons have kindled to such a pitch of insanity that your good name, once so renowned and loved by all, has been greatly reviled. For has anyone ever visited you who did not approve your most excellent and steadfast faith? Who did not admire your sober and magnanimous Christian piety? Who did not proclaim the magnificent character of your hospitality? Who did not congratulate you on your complete and sound knowledge? For you did everything without partiality. <laughs> like, okay. You read 1 Corinthians, and then you hear that letter, and say, are these the same people? The people who are opposing the Corinthians are the arrogant. The people who are opposing the, the Corinthians have created an unholy schism they're dividing. They're black. They're speaking against the good name of the Corinthians. Doesn't everyone know how renowned the Corinthians are by their love, by their, their faith, their piety, their hospitality, how they demonstrate partiality? It's, it's wild to think that this is the same group. 
50 years later. Now, what accounts for this change? I think there are three options. One, it could be the death and or the departure of the unloving Christians in Corinth that Paul speaks to. I mean, this is, after all, 50 years later. And we don't know how often people left their, their home. Maybe some said, forget this, I'm, I'm done living in Corinth, I'm out of here. And naturally, 50 years later, people die. So some people have died, some people have left, and the arrogant spirit in Corinth is no more. Or it has abated significantly. That's one option. Another option could be that there's a heart change in these Corinthians. Like the Spirit actually did what we know the Spirit can do in the hearts of those who submit to the Spirit. Maybe these words, these hard words that Paul offered them, actually had an impact. And they had the humility to think, well, maybe we really are arrogant. Maybe we really don't love one another. We are demonstrating divisive spirit. We're not being united as we're called to be. We're not forgiving. We're holding, on. we're holding grudges. We are not being patient with our brothers and sisters. Maybe they had a time to reflect. Wow. Okay. What do I do? Well, I listen to Paul, who's an apostle from the Lord. Or it could be a bit of both. A lot can happen in 50 years. New people come in. Some people go out. That's a generation. So, if there's hope for the Corinthians, who were an especially gifted, but also an especially divisive church, surely there can be hope for us as well. As we heed Paul's word, as we submit to the wisdom of God, and seek to love one another as God and Christ has loved us. There's all the hope in the world. Because... God. What does this tell us about ourselves and our own situation? <laughs> I'm talking Cross Creek here. Okay, I'm talking about you, I'm talking about others who will join us in worship in just a little bit. I'm talking about us. I'm not going to speak for all of Cross Creek, but I'll speak for myself. That's very it's humble. way, way, way too easy for me to assume that I'm right and somebody else is wrong and to be very arrogant and not listen to what they have to say. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. you, know, you use whatever logic you want to use to defend, falsely defend yourself. It seems to be uh, a basic sinful trait we need to be overcoming. Our entire lives as we become Christians, we are battling with sin daily. Like, I'm going to stand before the pulpit again and ask the Lord to forgive us. Even though we love Him greatly and wish to obey Him, we continue to sin. That sin is so tempting for a high level of number of us, quote, Christians. Yeah. How, how can these arrogant people not believe in Christ? Right? Well, we didn't believe in Christ, at least I didn't. Right. For sure. Yeah. There but for the grace of God go I. Right. Mm -hmm. that, to me, that's so much, that should be a course on how do I deal with myself and change. And that's what we're doing right now. Yeah. Actually. If I could put a plug in for evening worship tonight. 
good evening worship. <laughs> We're starting the book of Nehemiah, and the title, I think, is Broken Walls, Broken Worshippers. The whole of Nehemiah is, is a witness to the humility that the people need to demonstrate in order for there to be real, whole life restoration. So we're going to look at six attitudes, actions, of broken-hearted individuals, of people who are humble before God. We all need that. I guess the other part of me is how easily I'm offended. Could be offended. I'm trying to get beyond that. I mean, the slightest statement from somebody... It's the same thing with driving. That's a major challenge for me. Somebody arrogantly drives in front of you to automatically get mad. Yeah. Inappropriately mad, actually. Hymn 252, when I survey the wondrous cross, what do I do? I pour contempt on all my pride. We are easily, we can be easily offended. And that easy, that ease to offense has to do with it, has to do with arrogance. Who does she think she is that she can say this about me? Who does he think he is that he can say this? I'm offended. Okay. Okay. All right. Anyone else want to answer that question about what does this tell us about ourselves and our own situations? Well, one thing um, for me I noticed is if I'm focusing more on a good other people have shown me, it's harder for me to be arrogant because I have a better understanding of how much I need to be thankful for. So why boast to myself when I'm seeing myself receiving all these gifts? Yeah. What does Paul encourage us to do instead? Oh, I'll love to have And in Philippians 4, what does he cause us to, or encourage us to focus on instead? The good things. The good things. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it is. Whatever is true, honorable, and God. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which I think we will get to that in a couple of weeks. We will. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're teaching that one, aren't you? Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> so you think you're looking forward to it. <laughs> Anyone else on that question? What does all this tell us about ourselves and our own situations? I think it's always just encouraging to see, um, you know, that there's nothing new under the sun, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the Corinthians were dealing with all of these various issues, division in their church, and, you know, here we are, 2,000 plus years later, and have, in the last year, dealt with some really hard things in our church, including division and losing people. Um, but it's encouraging to know that the Lord is faithful to his people. He is faithful to the body of Christ. And he obviously did a mighty work in the Corinthian church, given what we see from the letter from Clement. So it's just an encouragement and you know that God keeps his promises to his people and he doesn't leave them even when they are in a state of division or dissension or arrogance or whatever it is. Um, so if he can do a mighty work in the Corinthian church, certainly he can do one here in Cross Creek. So love is not arrogant, and love is not rude. 
So when you think of rudeness, what comes to mind? How rude. <laughs> sure you know what I'm referring to there. Okay. Rudeness is like a cardinal sin in the South. <laughs> it's of course a problem in Corinth as well. Don't be rude. Be nice. Whatever nice means. Kindness would be a better word than niceness. Nice, did you know it actually means ignorant? Literally, that's what it meant. So, about 100 years ago, to say the girl was a nice little girl, it's an ignorant little girl. Cool. Okay. How did that Well, it's the same thing like peruse. People say peruse this, and what they mean is just have a, a short glance at it, just take a, a little look at it, which is actually the opposite of what peruse really means. It means to consider something thoroughly. Language, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> Use it, I guess. Properly in context. Anyways, what is what's rudeness? What comes to mind when you think of rudeness? First thing for me is a lack of caring. A lack of caring. Of, yeah, just most of the day-to-day -day rudeness I've been into is just people are just like, "This is what I'm doing. I don't care how it affects anyone else." They're not trying to actively make anyone's life worse, mm -hmm. but they're also not trying to be polite or stay out of the way there's like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and if it gets in your way, that's your problem. So like a spirit of apathy. Yeah, okay. Being inconsiderate. Being inconsiderate. Okay. Yeah. Not considering others. Again, a spirit of apathy. I don't care what you, what you think, what you say. I'm going to do my own thing. Okay. Being, being discourteous, not having proper manners. So having manners then assumes something, doesn't it? What does not having manners assume or having manners assume? That there are manners? Okay. Well, what does the fact of manners assume? <clears throat> that you respect someone else. Okay, that you respect someone else. Well, where do we get this idea that we have to respect someone else? The Bible. Okay. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. What is contextually appropriate, right, wrong? So there's a system of morality, there's a system of customs, a system of, of way things are done, or a way things ought to be done. And to be rude is to forget that system, to reject that system to go contrary to that system. Are you going to say something? No. Well, you're on track, you're on the right track for that one, because this word, again, only Paul uses, it's, it's here in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, and then only one other place, also in 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 36. And it says, a man who thinks he is not behaving properly toward his fiancée should marry her. Uh, so, let's see here. Uh, verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, 
If his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it is no sin. Okay. So what he's exhorting the man to do is, hey, you, you have this woman who is engaged to be your wife, uh, and, and you think you're going to get involved in any kind of um, disrespectful, discourteous manner, conduct with her, if your passions are strong for her, you really want to marry her, don't worry, it's not a sin, get married. So there is propriety, there is a, uh, a certain way that this man need to, needs to conduct himself towards this woman. You can't just treat any woman however you like. There's a certain way you ought to behave towards her. There's a way that you behave towards someone that you want to be your wife, uh, and there's a way you behave towards those that you don't want to be your wife. Paul says you need to treat the, the young women with all purity. Okay. So behind this verse is the expectation that men and women will get married, and that if you're engaged, you conduct yourselves in a certain way. You don't do certain things before marriage. So he's talking here about a particular conduct um, that is um, honorable. To be rude is to demonstrate shameful conduct, dishonorable conduct, conduct that is again discourteous. In the New Testament or in the Old Testament. This Greek word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's used in a variety of passages, Deuteronomy 25, verse 3. I think I gave you the references there. Ezekiel 16, 7, 22, and 39. They all speak about uh, nakedness or being bare, um, exposing. Okay. To be rude is to disregard the pattern of conduct befitting of Christians. So there's a there's a way Christians ought to be. And to be rude is to reject that way. It's to say, that way is not for me. Which is actually another way of demonstrating arrogance. I have my own way of living. So, God has expectations for how husbands relate to their wives, how wives relate to their husbands. How parents relate to their children, how children relate to their parents, how employers and employees relate to one another, master-slave relationship, okay? How Christians relate to one another. There are these expectations, how elders relate to the congregation, the congregation relates to the elders, deacons, members, there are expectations for how a Christian citizen should conduct himself in a society. Okay. There are a lot of expectations. That's what Paul's getting at. Love acknowledges those expectations and seeks to operate within God's prescribed wisdom, his word, on how to relate to a variety of individuals. I relate to my wife differently from how I relate to any other woman. And it would be rude, biblically speaking, if I related to her in the same way as related to any of you. Or to you, in, any, in the same way as, as I do to her, if, there are, if I make no distinctions. You guys get what I'm talking about? Okay. 
How did Jesus Christ, the love of God incarnate, show that he was not rude? I hope you know that this is not countenancing or approving any and all societal expressions of, of proper behavior. Like if today, if, if we want to be want to be submissive to um, our, our own culture's manners now, it would be rude to say the things that we say about certain behavior. It would be rude to speak against and to act contrary to the ways that we are being essentially commanded to act. So this Paul's not getting at some kind of relativism here. Just when in Rome, do as the Romans. That's not what he's getting at. Saying, as a Christian, act as a Christian in your various relationships. So how, how does Christ not demonstrate rudeness? You ready? You fed the 5,000? Son demonstrated that. 
biblical hospitality. That bell went off a couple minutes too soon. Last few weeks, he's been ringing it a couple minutes early. Oh, we got a different clock he's looking at. Very quickly, any ways, particular examples or scenarios in which we can demonstrate godly propriety over rudeness? Being hospitable is what we just mentioned. Being less critical of others. There's, you know, there's small things people do that aggravate you that you should just go, that's no big thing, it's not worth making a big deal out of. And I think we're tempted to do the complete reverse, make a huge deal out of something that's too small. Which is true. Joanna? Giving to the poor? says that was one thing he was very eager to do, very willing to do. Um, yeah. well, we say we're, we're, we're godly when we share it. We should be godly in sharing the gospel. And not just in word, but in actions and deeds that draw others to it. Sure. It's easily said and very hardly done sometimes. Especially when there's opposition. Yeah. We're preaching about that this morning. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do thank you again for the time that we had to reflect on your word here in just parts of two, ver- parts of two verses. So much here, and where we could have spent many hours even just talking about one of these attributes and, and how to demonstrate it. Lord, we depend upon your spirit. We're thankful that we have a hope that we are being built into the person of Christ, into his image. We are being conformed into his image because of the Spirit's work in us. And we do pray, Lord, that, that you would continue to work mightily in us because we need it. We are lowly servants, and there's so much more room for us to grow. Please increase the humility in our hearts. We might know our sin more. We might know our Savior with greater love and warmth as well. And that that love would be demonstrated in our lives with one another. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Mm